Welcome to this edition of the God's Word, Our Great Heritage Podcast. The lead singer of the group U2, Bono, if you've never heard of him, you've almost certainly heard his music. He's a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and a former Time Magazine Man of the Year. Bono once said in an interview, The secular response to Christ always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He says, no, I'm not a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I am the Messiah. I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. But you say Messiah, and we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from the Romans, but actually, I am the Messiah. Bonnet goes on to say, so what you're left with is, either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, this man was strapping himself to a bomb and had king of the Jews on his head. And as they were putting him up on the cross, he was going, Okay, martyrdom, here we go. Bring on the pain. You remember Peter's answer to Jesus' question, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ, the promised one, the very Son of God. May our answer be the same. As we brought out in the last couple of episodes, in this last week of Jesus' earthly life, a week we call Holy Week, he was clearly claiming to be the Messiah and God incarnate. He had triumphantly ridden into the city with the crowds waving palm branches and wildly proclaiming him their king. Then the next day, He had entered the temple and overturned the tables, driving out the cellars and effectively shutting it down for several hours, taking control of the entire 35-acre temple complex. This was even more of a statement than the triumphal entry. Having made his point, Jesus withdrew to Bethany for the night. The next day, when he returned to the temple, he was met by a delegation consisting of all three groups who made up the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. They wanted to know, by what authority are you doing these things? It's a good question. A lot depends on it. It makes all the difference in the world if Jesus is the Son of God, or he is just some nutcase making outrageous claims. Jesus answers their question, with a question of his own. They refuse to answer his question, and so he refuses to answer theirs. But he does tell them a story. The story will indirectly answer their question. It is to that story we now turn. First, let's pray. Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Curb those who by deceit or sword would seek to overthrow your son and to destroy what he has done. Amen. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. 
A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then the owner sent another servant to them. They struck this man in the head and treated him shamefully. He He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. In Jesus' day, the wealthy often lived some distance from their estates. Tenant farmers would work the land and, in exchange, would give some of the produce to the landowner. So the setting of this story is familiar to Jesus' hearers. And the meaning was not hard for them to figure out. The vineyard is the nation of Israel, and God is the owner. The wicked tenants, the farmers, were those to whom God had entrusted his vineyard, his people. Those wicked tenants were the teachers of the Bible and those who were leading the temple sacrifices. God had every right to expect there to be fruits from their work. But these teachers and priests, many of them at least, distorted God's word. Yes, there was some faith in Israel when Jesus came. There were people like Simeon and Anna, Zechariah and Elizabeth. But for the most part, the people misunderstand The servants in the story are the prophets God sent to his people. But the wicked tenants, these Jewish leaders, mistreated them and even killed some of them. So what will God do? This parable is often called the parable of the wicked tenants for obvious reasons. But Kenneth E. Bailey in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, makes an interesting point. Maybe it should be called the parable of the noble vineyard owner. Because the owner is the main character. What will he do in the face of such rebellion and wickedness? That's the key question. And it's the point of the parable. You you see, in our, our stories, we usually expect the high point of the story to be near the end. But in the Middle Eastern storytelling, the high point is usually in the middle. And here it is. What will the vineyard owner, what will God do In the face of such rebellion, verse 6, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Here in this verse is the point of Jesus' parable. How will God react in the face of such violence? He will make himself vulnerable. He will send them his son. Some of you may remember the name King Hussein, the king of Jordan some years ago. He was well known for his tolerance of those who opposed him. And and there was one story confirmed by a high-ranking American intelligence officer that, that really stood out in that. It happened that one night King Hussein was informed by his security police that there was a group of 75 of his army officers who were at that very moment meeting in nearby barracks plotting a military overthrow of King Hussein. The security police 
officers requested permission to surround these 75 officers and arrest them. But King Hussein said, bring me a helicopter. A helicopter was brought, the king climbed in, the pilot flew to the very barracks where these guys were meeting and landed on its roof. Hussein told the pilot, if you hear gunshots, fly away at once. Unarmed, the king then walked down two flights of stairs and suddenly appeared in the room where these guys were plotting to overthrow him. And he very calmly, quietly said to them, Gentlemen, it's come to my attention that you're meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow my government and take over the country and install a military dictator. If you do, the country will plunge into civil war and thousands, tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There's no need. Here I am. Kill me and proceed. That way, only one man will die. There was stunned silence. And then the rebels, as one, rushed forward to pledge their loyalty to Hussein for life. You see, Hussein so loved his people that he took an incredible risk. The point of Jesus' parable is that he so loved the world, he made an incredible sacrifice. Jesus knows that these religious leaders aren't going to rush him in, in some pledge of their loyalty. No, just the opposite. This is Tuesday. On Friday, they will kill him. But he goes willingly. Verse 7. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. These religious leaders certainly got the point of Jesus' story. He had very bluntly answered their question, who did he think he was? God's own son, come to show them God's love. But he also gives them a blunt warning of their own fate if they do not repent. Verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They got it. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. To go back to that, that quote at the beginning of our episode, Jesus didn't give them the option of calling him teacher. They either had to kill him or fall on their knees and worship him. They chose to kill him. But in his death, he has removed the guilt of all of our sin. He had warned them of the terrible consequences of rejecting his work, but they did not listen. They tried again to trap him. Verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? 
The Herodians were those who supported the political aspirations of King Herod. And the Pharisees and the Herodians couldn't stand each other. The Pharisees were the super-religious people of the day, and very proud of it. And the Herodians, well, they were the irreligious people of the day, who reveled in their immorality. And yet, these two very different groups, who couldn't stand each other, made common cause in their efforts to discredit Jesus. The tax in question was the annual tax they had to pay, pay to a pagan emperor, Caesar. If Jesus says pay it, it will probably hurt his popularity with the masses. If he says don't pay it, there will be Romans who are listening and Jesus will find himself in some trouble. Verse 15. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him the coin, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. By carrying around a coin with Caesar's image and inscription, they were tacitly acknowledging Caesar's authority and answering their own question. If you're going to carry around Caesar's coin and do business with those coins, well, then pay your tax with them as well. Both Peter and Paul offer commentary on Jesus' words. What do we owe to our government? Taxes, among other things. And among the other things is obedience, unless the government is asking us to do something contrary to God's word. And what do we owe to God? Well, everything. Our very life and breath. Everything that we have, everything that we are, we owe to our gracious God. Verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection... Whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? It seems that wherever Jesus turned, he was being challenged. Now it was the Sadducees who came. The Sadducees denied that there is life after death, that there is a resurrection of the dead or or life eternal. And they thought they had come up with the perfect example to show how foolish that hope is. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Was not a serious question. It was meant to ridicule Jesus and anyone else who believed in heaven. Well, Jesus doesn't answer their silly question, but he goes to scripture, verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage 
They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. First, these Sadducees had not taken into consideration that in heaven there will be no death. So, there will be no need of reproducing. So, there will be no marriage. Second, they did not know that scriptures, and they only accepted the first five books. And so, Jesus shows they haven't even looked at those carefully. Because in the first five books of the Bible you will find the account of Moses and the burning bush. And there, God does not say, I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am the God of Abraham. He is still Abraham's God because Abraham lives in heaven. So, in denying life after death, they were in fact denying what they believed to be the scriptures. But just wait. In less than a week, Jesus is going to prove the resurrection of the dead in the most dramatic fashion as he victoriously rises from his own grave. Next week, as we continue in chapter 12, we'll hear even more of Jesus' teaching during Holy Week, including his teaching of the greatest commandment. Please join us. Now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you.